everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Lexclusive, the podcast hosted by Paper Street Web Design and Marketing. As always, I'm the host of the show, Nancy, the Client Relations Manager here, and today we're doing things a little bit differently. Instead of having one of our team members on the show today, we actually have one of our clients. Bill Jowitz is our guest today, and he is an executive coach who works exclusively with attorneys. This is his 22nd year of working in this capacity, and he is the founder of SuccessTracksESQ.com and LawyerTimeManagement.com. Bill provides coaching and training for law firms, and we're going to dig into his background and teachings during this show. As we always try to be more of a resource for the attorneys who listen to our show, we thought this would be an interesting experience for our listeners in order to hear a little bit more about how to improve your law practice and just get some overall ideas. And we just thought this was a good fit for our show. And as I've mentioned before, Bill is one of our favorite clients here at Paper Street. We've designed his site and we help with the marketing of his wife's firm. So Bill, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome, Nancy. My pleasure. Okay, Bill, let's get started talking about your background. It's a unique and an interesting one. So what led you to embark on a career in attorney coaching? Uh, It's a second career for me. I was a high school English teacher, my first career, and a charter school developer. And uh, I was not a literature teacher. As an English teacher, I was more of a nonfiction guy, Um, media studies, journalism, film, kind of the cool English courses, um, I'd say, back uh, way back when, 35 years ago. And uh, then I started a charter school, our first in Connecticut. And after doing that for a couple of years, I realized I preferred working with adults. I wanted to work with adults. The charter school, by the way, is still going, um, I'm proud to say, but I really wanted to work with adults. Um, I read an article in Time Magazine on the then new industry of executive coaching, did two years of training, started to coach anyone who wanted to get clear about um, their goals and uh, how to achieve them, and uh, did a program on making time for marketing. This was probably my second year of coaching before I had lasered into working with attorneys. And an attorney came up to me afterwards and said, "Um, boy, I I need to make time for marketing. I'm very busy. And within a month, uh, he had introduced me to his firm. And uh, a month after that, I did my first program for the Connecticut Bar Association. And uh, I had hired a coach uh, early in the process to help me make the transition from teaching to executive coaching, not knowing I'd yet zero into working with lawyers. And she had me read a book called Attracting Perfect Customers, which was about really identifying uh, with whom one most connects and why at a deeper level. So I was doing the exercises of that book when this lawyer came up to me and said, that's what I need. I said, I've never coached a lawyer. He said, I'm not asking you to coach me in the law, but I do need to uh, become more productive and spend more effective time marketing. And uh, while I was reading this book and the light bulb just clicked because I have been a lifelong SCOTUS uh, oral argument junkie, an early C-SPAN fan, my graduate work and my teaching career was in language of propaganda and media studies. And what clicked, uh, thanks to my coach and reading this book, Lodo's years ago, Um, was that I have a deep fascination for language and classical argument. 
And of course, this is the the essence of being an attorney, using words to accomplish things, uh, whether contractual or in a litigation context. So uh, I never looked back um, from that first lawyer client 22 years ago um, and have since, uh, you know, done bar association and um, all kinds of training and you can look at the sites. So that's how I got into it. Um, and the particular interest in productivity and time management arose from, I guess, a lifelong fascination with, geez, life is short, it's precious, and uh, how do we make the most of it? So that's the the quick uh, summary of the fascination with attorneys and language and the law and uh, productivity, time management, how we make the best use of uh, our our days and months and years uh, on this earth. Funny, Bill, because I connect with you a lot on this. I feel like we're kindred spirits um, because I actually, I mean, as our listeners know, I started out as an attorney and then dug into legal marketing because it's a very similar thing to what you're talking about. A lot of lawyers go to school to learn the law. I mean, that's what it's taught in law school. But effective practice management is basically usually one course, you know, and I'm sure a lot of our attorney listeners will be like, oh, yeah, I, I either saw that course and didn't take it or I took it and it didn't really help. Um, and I think that what you're talking about, what we talk about here at Paper Street is just something that's really overlooked that, you know, taking time out of your day to do things like attract clients and even just organize how your your firm is running just doesn't seem to be something that lawyers really receive enough training for. And it sounds like people responded well to you because they don't have that background. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It's, 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 an, it's an interesting thing. I think attorneys know how to do law, but they need the outside assistance to really get into the meat of these things. Why would you say that time management becomes such an issue for the attorneys? What do you see as some of the most common struggles among your the, either the clients that you coach or the attorneys that you provide these trainings for? What, do, what are the common things people tell you? Oh, gosh. Well, first, a, a caveat that I, I offer in responding to any kind of question like this is that um, the general public thinks of lawyers and the law from what they watch on TV and what they may know, what their initial experiences may have been personally. But when it comes to speaking of lawyer coaching or lawyer training, um, you know, a small firm in a suburb where there are two or three attorneys who do a wide variety of work uh, on a B to C level business to consumer that is criminal or wills and trusts or family law uh, or some business formation, their experience, despite the fact that they also went to um, law school and passed the bar, is extremely different, profoundly different from an AMLA one or 200 attorney doing, for example, you know, um, international um, transactions or multi-state or jurisdiction um, class action defense work. Their lives are so different. The exposure to technology, the pressures on them, they're not, one is not greater than the other, certainly in a small firm in a, uh, any town USA, thank goodness for those lawyers. They care deeply about their clients um, and they have to navigate um, the um, ethics rules to serve their clients well. So I'm not comparing the um, the difficulty or the opportunities or challenges in both those settings, but the um, experience is extremely different. So 
um, depending on, you know, so I'm always looking for what's in common that all lawyers um, struggle with, with I think, you know, is, is sort of your question, irrespective of the setting or the practice area they're setting, they're working in. Um, and um, so maintaining information, uh, however they do that, um, using technology or practice management platforms, but controlling and working with information that comes into the practice, again, whether you're in a large firm, you have a team of people working with you, or you're in a small firm, and maybe one or two or no support staff, controlling the information that comes in and managing the information that goes out that you share with your clients and with opposing counsel and with uh, all the people that are part of doing what you do is um, is really challenging. It's become increasingly challenging as a result of um, the overall cultural acceleration of information, the explosion of information, thanks to technology, social media, et cetera. So um, one, you know, a major challenge is giving attention to the, um, the cases at hand appropriately. When you've got more than you can do on a given day, managing one's calendar and one's docket and one's awareness of deadlines as information is flowing in and out of practice is one of the major challenges that I see. Um, there's uh, also the whole dynamic of who, who chooses to go into the law. That's a really interesting thing, right? Where the, it's an inherently um, adversarial relationship, even if in, in transaction work, you want to make sure that you are getting the, the best terms for the buy-sell for your client and you're negotiating on the other side. So there is um, the, the work itself is inherently um, stressful and challenging. I think what you're saying resonates even with the clients that I speak with. You know, I'll find that a lot of them focus so much on the actual case management that the, from what I've talked to clients about, client intake is almost pushed aside or our law firms are always looking for a better way to manage their time with client intake and how to do it correctly. And I yeah. think that from what I see as an outsider, and I'm sure you can either confirm or deny, but it seems like that time management aspect often gets pushed aside. Um, and then it's always like driven by case, driven by billable hours. You know, if you're in corporate law or you're in, you know, am law and all that, it's your billable hours, your caseload and all of that. And then sometimes if you're a solo practitioner, you know, you're or a smaller firm, you're always rushing to get everything done that sometimes like the day-to-day -day management just doesn't get the full schedule. It doesn't get that time booked out. Am I correct? Yeah, and there's a um, a great book um, for those who own their own firms or are equity owners of small firms where they have a fundamental management responsibility called The E-Myth. It's been around for a long time. The E-Myth Revisited is the title. The author is Michael Gerber. Um, he's got a couple of really important uh, concepts in the book, which is why it's been a bestseller forever. And I recommend to all of my clients who uh, own their own practices Again, as opposed to um, partners in, in large firms. Um, and that is uh, one of the key concepts of the book is the difference between working in your practice and working on your practice. So all the things that an attorney does during the day, administratively, legally, um, to work their cases, they are working in their practice. That's the nature of their practice. He argues that we need to take time to step above the daily fray and work on our practices or what he says, you know, work um, in your business or 
on your business. Um, in our context, of course, of all lawyers, we're talking about their practices. And that's just what you're saying, Nancy, is that it's so easy to do the thing that is right in front of you instead of pause to look at how is the operation organized? Where are there inefficiencies? And if one is in the position of having more work than um, or enough work or more work, right, where you're feeling pressured, it's hard to pause and do and stop and devote regular time, weekly, monthly, quarterly, to both planning and then to execution of process improvement, for example, when the case is just sitting there and uh, calling for your attention. The opposite side can be true where if there isn't enough work coming in, then there are tendencies to sort of stay busy, but not necessarily applying a very thoughtful strategy for business development. And so we'll, when we dig into the eight keys, we'll, we'll talk about that. So there are challenges on both sides, not being busy enough, um, being too busy, and then finding that sweet spot, which is productive enough where your practice itself is prof- sufficiently profitable, according to whatever you your goals are, and it's sustainable at that level of profitability. I have to ask, Bill, you know, with I've seen at least since COVID, it seems that a lot more law firms adapted being virtual. And it seems as though, you know, they're having a lot more attorneys work some days in the office, some days not in the office, things like that. Has that changed the perspective of your teachings? Have you had newer challenges as a result of that? Or Um, is it largely the same problems across the board, maybe just with a slightly different spin on them? uh, I would say the latter. I mean, the spin is... um around, uh, again, it depends, you know, if someone is single and they can work from home and they're not pulled by family obligations uh, or distractions in the house, uh, you know, so it depends. Um, The eight keys apply to um, full-time in the office, full-time remote, hybrid. The eight keys are the eight keys. Um, Each setting has some slightly unique considerations to attend to. But the it, it hasn't changed the core um, actions and, uh, again, elements. I describe them as the keys or elements, um, regardless of the setting. Let's dig into these eight keys of productivity. They really are the hallmark of your teachings. Um, so let, I'll let you introduce them and break it down for our listeners. Yeah, I'll do a s- real short summary of each. So what I call the first key is mindset which is becoming aware of what our beliefs are around our ability to improve our um, efficiency and productivity and profitability, um, depending on how long we've been um, working in our um, fields and in our practices and businesses, we have fallen into habits. It's quite understandable. And people I have found most attorneys have worked in such a way, unless they're brand new, where they're a little more open to this. But the longer someone's in practice, the longer they've had to be set in their ways and kind of, I don't want to say give up, but just sort of accept that it's really hard to change what their outcomes could be to learn new tricks and to push back against Um, the firm culture and their own beliefs and their own patterns. And so the first is a mindset around 
um, acknowledging that change truly can happen. And while that sounds conceptually abstract and maybe a little woo-woo for some, it is absolutely uh, essential because most of us have heard that adage, you know, that um, insanity is um, doing the same thing, but expecting different results, which means we need to do things differently. Attorneys need to do things differently if they want to see measurable ROI of whatever effort they make in executing the these eight keys or any program of self-improvement or productivity improvement. There are certainly many out there. Um, so the first uh, key in my um, training and coaching is to explore what is actually possible and what goals, you know, what would be different a year from the day we first have the conversation. If they could wave the wand, what would they have changed if they looked back a year from this date um, that they'd have done differently? And most people, when prompted and who are open-minded, can actually begin visualizing oh, I think this would be cool if this were different or that were different. Um, maybe it's working fewer night hours or fewer weekend hours. And then looking at what they have to change um, in their own beliefs and the conversations they need to have with the people in their world, whether it's colleagues or family, around uh, embarking on a process to dramatically improve their own productivity. So key one, mindset. Key two starts getting much more practical, and it's task management. Um, many uh, attorneys um, use some form of to-do list. Many still, uh, maybe not surprisingly, maybe surprisingly, try to keep tasks in their heads. Um, it's the proverbial wake up in the middle of the night saying, you know, did that get filed? Um, Guilty of that myself. <laughs> uh, I haven't ever worked with an attorney um, who's not... Uh, more than once um, had that thought <laughs> or that experience. And so task management basically is the awareness and the development of a, a set of tools and routines that allow for the easy retrievability of tasks that need to be done, whether those are particular items on the case, the next steps on a case, or um longer range marketing projects or specific deadlines for um, deliverables that may or may not be case related and getting them out of our head because there is unassailable research that the more we try to remember in our minds, rather than writing them down in an easily retrievable, comprehensive way, the less effective we are in concentrating on whatever it is we are attending to at the moment because there is some bandwidth, there's some percentage of cognitive energy that is constantly scanning for, did I get that done? What was I thinking about this morning on the way in? Or when I was sitting with coffee, I meant to have this, did I follow up with this person? Whatever. And so um, it's it's challenging. Uh, and there are ways from using an old fashioned, old fashioned, it's funny, legal pad that when I first start working with lawyers, even in 2023, a lot of them just use uh, a legal pad and they wind up crossing things off and then they move it to the next day, the things they didn't get done. That's better than keeping it in your head. But there are many tools that make task management much more efficient and effective in the digital world we live in, where you don't have to worry about forgetting them. So that's task management key two. Key three is um, effective planning and scheduling. 
and to work on the business, not just in it. A subset of that means starting your day. Sometimes it could be the night before. Most folks have better success in the mornings doing it. Looking at the calendar, looking at that written, effective, comprehensive task list, and going through a seven or eight step process of deciding what you're going to work on, how much time you're going to devote to it, given the amount of free time that you have on that given day. Um, some days you'll have no free time if you're court heavy. Some days, uh, if you're doing high-end trust and estates, you may have a couple of meetings for some signings or some document review, and you have quite a bit of free space on your calendar. Again, that's an example of the wide range uh, of experience based on practice area, sophistication of practice area, et cetera. Nonetheless, everybody I recommend and in the training to my clients do this 30, 15 to 30 minute start of the day, uninterrupted daily planning checklist. And that daily planning checklist is on the lawyertimemanagement.com site for anyone who would like to grab it. You know, for 20 years, people have said if there's one thing that made the biggest difference where they would never go back to the way they used to practice, it is having developed a very strong muscle, a routine where before they just launch into work at seven, eight, nine in the morning, whenever it is, where whatever they were working on last is what they're working on now, they stop, they grab this uninterrupted, isolated time to follow this checklist, which is looking at your calendar, talking to anybody on your team you need to talk to, making any adjustments, and doing this rigorous um, review of what you want to work on on a given day, knowing that there's more to do than you could possibly get done in a given day, right? So this forces someone to be more conscious about what they're prioritizing and how they are allocating in their mind the amount of time they want to spend on it, because we all tend to chronically underestimate how long something's going to take. That's normal. Lawyers are particularly susceptible to that because there is this sort of tsunami of work all right, on your to-do list. And so you want to just move through stuff as quickly as possible. So again, the key three is planning and using your schedule so that your calendar becomes an ally, not an adversary, so that it is trustworthy, so that you can look at it and not have five overlapping events, three invites, two of which you haven't responded to, but it's still there. And someone else puts something on your calendar at the same time. And you look at the calendar and kind of just don't even want to look at it because it is so complicated or confusing and it doesn't reflect reality. And so we tend to want to shy away from it. So planning and scheduling is about deciding how your day is going to go and making sure that your calendar, your docket is thoughtful and accurate so that it's a tool that can help you rather than something that um, you only look at with some trepidation. You no, know, it's interesting yeah. because you know, for a lot of attorneys, we are driven by deadline, you know, so obviously if your case brief is due the next day, it's going to be due the next day. That's it. When you're having someone, when you're looking at your calendar, trying to prioritize, do you suggest prioritizing by doing the easier things first? Or do you really rely on the personal feelings that day? Do you believe there's a process yeah. of, oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z first because they're easy and I could check them off faster? Or do you do a more subjective approach? Well, the criteria that I speak of in the training and the coaching is, you know, um, first getting clear on what those criteria are. So that can be an energy level, depending on the time of day, um, may be one criterion. But obviously, external deadlines, to your point, you know, is the, is the obvious one. Um, but um, what will create greatest leverage 
Um, it may not be the most immediate, but what will build capacity? So if you say, wow, you know, I want to get my team together. So we finally decide uh, how to standardize um, some document format or get training on a new piece of software. And if everybody did that and everybody learned it, it's going to save me, you know, uh, hours going forward instead of repeating, you know, answering the same question over and over again. So is there a deadline to that? No. Would it um, bring lasting benefit? Yes. Um, and then other criteria include just intellectual satisfaction. You know, it's like, boy, I haven't, there's no deadline on this case, but I really want to do this research. And today, given the amount of free space I have, I'm going to spend 45 minutes just reviewing the summary that an associate provided me, guiding me on what kind of research I should get to, or look at some sources provided from, you know, their, their draft of research or a table of contents, because I care about that. So it's a mix. What you're speaking of around hardest in the morning or tackling, that's very subjective. There's some people, generally the consensus wisdom is, sure, you tackle the hardest things earlier in the morning just because most people's energy fades in the afternoon. So that that might be a very simple answer to that specific question around when you tackle complicated things. But there are many more um, subtleties that can be brought to bear in analyzing what you're going to choose to do when on a given day. Key four is team effectiveness, and that speaks to um, making sure that everyone on whom you rely and those who rely on you to get um, things done uh, effectively and well, um, uh, it, it requires much more <laughs> conscious um, development than most people uh, devote time to. And so um, one of the resources I have is, a, is a, called an effective delegation checklist. Um, lawyers as a group, generally as a subset of professionals in professional services, um, tend to be a little impatient. They tend to be verbal. So they give instructions verbally instead of taking the time to give more comprehensive instructions and train people. Of course, there is the natural tendency we're all subject to, um, which is, it's going to take you know as much time for me to explain this to this person as if you know um, you know that I could do myself. In fact, I could probably do it faster. But that's that short-sighted um, immediate gratification, if you will, or immediate response. Instead of saying, "Well, if I train somebody to do it and I take extra time to use a really effective delegation checklist, that will save me time because I will be." Um, interrupted less frequently with questions because uh, I didn't provide as detailed a um, set of instructions for handing this thing off, or I didn't identify what I call the five W's and an H, which is on the work product or the assignment that I'm giving to an associate or uh, you know a, a paralegal or anybody or a colleague, um, who, what, where, when, why, and how. Those are the five W's and an H from... I guess high school English, uh, uh, my yeah. former life. Well, high school English comes back and be helpful. I remember doing the five W's and H in my journalism classes. So. Yes, and it's definitely journalism. You're right. Um, but so, so team effectiveness is looking at spe your specific delegation to your team, but then also what are the um, agreements uh, around who's doing what when? How clear are um, authorities and responsibilities? Um, and how often do you meet as a team to review what needs to be reviewed? And how do you sort of anchor 
time devoted to how effective the team is, getting feedback, performance reviews, if you're responsible for doing those uh, uh, in your team. Um, so there's a lot of elements around team effectiveness, shared um, agreements around technology and interruptions. We'll talk a little bit more about that coming up in boundaries, key seven. Um, so how effective is the team? Where can team effectiveness um, be improved at the margins? And I'm always a fan of at the margins. I'm not you know, a, a revolutionary guy in the sense of this is going to radically transform everything you do on a rare occasion. There may be something that I see where I will say, you know what, you're just not using this technology. If you do, it really will bring huge benefit. Mostly increased productivity is an application of like the 80-20 rule. You may have heard of that, sometimes called the Pareto principle. Hey, what do we do a lot? What do I do a lot that gets that I spend most of my time doing that gets is responsible for the majority of the results I get. Out of all the things I do, there's a relatively small percentage that we do over and over and over again. So how do we gain a five or 10% improved efficiency with a few things that we do over and over again, rather than radically changing everything we do? So team effectiveness uh, is a key, is the fourth key. The fifth key is systems optimization. And that is making sure that you know how to use your software well, that you know how to, um, all the software, whether it is specifically around document creation and application of AI for conflict review, whatever it is, and what tools are you using? And then how, how clear is everyone on your team about using the right tools? For example, where you save documents, how you name documents, how the folders are named, um, and are those systems um, as efficient as possible so there are the fewest clicks necessary in order to access something and that version control protocols are understood and followed and software is applied to execute those version control systems. So systems optimization um, is around the tools that we're using, the processes and protocols and the clarity of those, the consistent application of those, the periodic review of those tools and systems and processes and procedures. That's what systems ops uh, is about. The sixth key is email management. It deserves its own. The fundamental truth is that email management <laughs> And, you know, regular email management and cleanup and attention um, deserves its own block in our minds as a, um, a non-negotiable. We just have to deal with it. I have seen clients with six figure, that is 100,000 unread email messages in their inbox uh, more times than I can tell you, which sounds shocking, but um, I have seen it um, tens of thousands many hundreds of unread email messages. So email management, um, I use a particular or follow, I have adapted it, but follow a particular um, program. You could get a book called The Hamster Revolution by um, a guy named Mike Song. His company is called Get Control. It is the one of the, if not the most widely used um, corporate um, email training programs uh, out there used globally. Um, and it's really a set of principles and ideas around how to um, use rules and filters 
and allocate time so that you don't reach that point, which many lawyers reach fairly quickly of overwhelm, where you just sort of give up and look at all the unread email messages you have. And then until you reach a point of stress or breakdown or freak out, we'll you know, take a weekend and try and deal with it. But obviously the consequences of unread email from ethics you know, risk of missing a deadline, something incredibly serious, to missing a marketing or a business development opportunity, to just the added stress of seeing a messy inbox is, is intense. And so we can use rules and systems and archives and naming conventions. There's a lot that goes into email management. There are a lot of tools out there, a lot of websites, a lot of approaches. Inbox Zero is one. And I was just going to ask about that. That's actually the philosophy we have here at Paper Street. I was going to ask if Inbox Zero falls And how well, (laughs) let me ask you. I mean, so it it can be used well, but again, so for example, I have a a, a client who does... um, uh, national level class action, multi-firms. He's lead trial counsel with, I don't know how many people are in the class and how many suits they're defending. Um, but that inbox zero approach, it just, you know, it, it, it doesn't work for him. Uh, it can work for other clients. I'm curious what your experience with it, Nancy, is at the firm and what your volume is and, and do people follow it? And, you know, it can be great. And it's an example of one of the approaches that are out there. But what's your thought on inbox zero? Personally, you know, again, I mean, some of our team members like it better than others. I know Pete's yeah. a big fan, our CEO, and he's written articles about it. Um, I think it depends a lot for for me personally. Like I interact with all of our clients substantially. So even though I feel like even though I'm using Inbox Zero personally, again, maybe I'm going to get poo-pooed for saying this here at Pinker Street, but I always find like I end up having too many folders because it's like, well, okay, I'm moving this to this client's folder and this client's folder, but we have 900 active clients at Paper Street. So taking things out and putting it into a folder doesn't always feel like the best best, uh, technique for me personally. Um, So I was interested if I just need to learn to embrace Inbox Zero more or if there is other... you know, this is this goes back to the mindset. Um, and one of the, you know, the, the truths is, I mean, I, it, it's amazing how much time we spend on email. And if you're in an right. listener's environment and an hourly billing, the, the dollar, uh, e- even if a significant percentage of the time you logged interaction with email was on revenue generating activity that you could bill for mm-hmm. drafting a response, yes. it is, it is huge dollar value. Um mm-hmm. It, it, and and um, lest I calculated, and you know, there's a variety of um, sources averaging, you know, looking at in the legal profession, how many hours a day do we spend on email? But um, I think it's basically like 45 days a year out of 365. It would be like the aggregate hours would be as if you spent 10 hours a day doing email for 45 days. That means no lunch. No bathroom breaks. That's 10 hours at whatever that winds up being, 450 hours. Um, And that's profound. And so to the extent that we resist embedding and embracing um, really good email management as part of our daily, weekly routine, then we're just kind of in, we have our head in the sand about it. Um, And again, there are, um, books and programs like um, Get Control, uh, again, the name of the book is The Hamster Revolution, um, kind of a goofy name, 
but where you're looking at who are your top offenders? How do you create, how do you send less to get less? How do you compose email messages that are much more likely to get a rapid response because relative to all of the senders that someone gets email from, yours are the clearest, um, the cleanest, the best formatted. Um, so it's content and how you write emails. It's the use of rules and filters and AI to organize the email that comes in. It's training the people in your organization and outside your organization, including your clients, on what your expectations are for response time of email. There's a lot that goes into it, but that's why it's one of the keys it, that you know deserves it. I thought about putting it into systems optimization, but it's just too central to everybody's existence. Um, oh, I agree. I, I think it, it could have its own training day in my mind. <laughs> Forget oh, yeah. it. Well, I, <laughs> well, yeah, many people do. I, I do. You know, I've done lots of full day email. And that's where, you know, people bring their laptops and they'll actually, you know, do the work to start learning. Um, Outlook calls it rules, but Gmail calls it filters. Um, right. uh, so key. So that's the sixth key. The seventh key is boundaries. And um, this connects to mindset and the eighth key, personal well-being. But boundaries has to do, um, as you might expect, with being clear around um, scope creep, around the tolerance of interruptions, the growing confidence to create non-interrupted time, um, and uh, how you handle being on the phone and getting off the phone and scheduling and saying, uh, no to meetings that may not be essential. Of course, all of this depends, again, if you are uh, a new attorney uh, and you assign to a senior partner and you're an associate, you're, you're kind of paying your dues. You don't have as much ability to push back or uphold boundaries. But it's not just uh, the boundaries that we set to prevent uh, ourselves from being interrupted, but it is the converse too, which is um, making sure that we are not uh, violating uh, the time boundaries of the rest of our teammates. So I'll have clients who sort of who get it and say, yeah, I want to set boundaries. Um, I'm going to close my door. I'm going to put my phone on DND and I'm going to work through the psychological agita of realizing, geez, maybe I'm going to miss the case of a lifetime if I put my phone on DND. So there's a lot of dimensions to this, but they sort of can buy into, boy, I would like to be interrupted less frequently. I'm going to turn off my dings and my phone vibrating and, and you know, and texts. Uh, and I'm going to set some time for um, planned response uh, communication blocks where it's not you know, non-urgent communication instead of just fielding calls and sh shooting back emails and responding to texts all day, which dramatic, which creates multitasking, which reduces effectiveness and increases stress, et cetera. Um, I'm going to, uh, you know, create better boundaries for myself. So my clients are like, they're all over that. And I'll say, well, okay, cool. If you are going to put your do not disturb on for a two hour block, because you have a critical brief that you're going to do, and you don't want to be disturbed. That means that everybody who's used to has been used to for years, popping their head in, picking up the phone, asking your question, shouting from the outside of the office, you know, with a question, they're going to have to not interrupt you, which means they're going to have to change their behaviors and learn to batch their questions for you. And you're going to have to be accountable to say, all right, I'm going behind closed doors. I'm going to be available from 
two to three to answer your question, please have your questions ready for me so that when you come in, you know what you're asking and you're not fumbling through stuff. So it is not only the boundaries that we use to protect our time, but it's adapting to other people's boundaries so that everybody on the team, whether that is just you and one part-time assistant or you and a whole team, a client service team that you're interacting with on a regular basis, that you're honoring their boundaries too. Um, and, uh, you know, w- one of the tricks, if I have time, um, very quickly, I'll suggest people, you know, at trainings, they go like, that was worth the price of admission. Here's a tip before you pick up the phone to answer it or place a call, look at the clock. I have a big digit, the, the letters are and the numbers of my digital clock are literally two inches high sitting literally as I'm looking at it right in front of my phone. I never pick up the phone without knowing what time it is. Right now, I have 1.50. So if I wanted to talk to you, Nancy, but I knew I had to turn to something at 2 o'clock, I would say, I might pick up and say, hi, Nancy, Um, I know we've been having a lot of exchange back and forth, the case things are heating up. Listen, I have something at 2. I have to be behind closed doors at 2. I have an appointment at 2. I will say something. And that means I have a couple minutes right now. Is there, if it's something we can handle, great. If not, I have my calendar open. Let's set a time for whatever. And the principle, the way I encapsulate this is to set the expectation for your availability, the time you have available, at the very beginning of the interaction. This is true if someone walks into your office. Hi, Bill. Oh, hey, Nancy, listen, it's 152. Um, I have something on my calendar at two that I got to get to. So uh, I have about two minutes right now. In other words, taking control. This is part of mindset. Getting comfortable saying, I'm going to be in control of how much time I spend in an interaction. So look at the clock, never pick up the phone or when someone walks in the door without looking at your clock first right off the bat, because if you don't do that and you start talking and then you feel like, I got to get off the phone. I got How do I get this person off the phone? How do I get them out of my office? They're going to feel like I'm trying to get rid of them. That does not happen psychologically, emotionally, when you set the expectation at the top of the interaction boundaries. The final interesting. So even if it's not a real meeting at two, let's say you don't, you would just say in your head that that is your cutoff point. That's two o'clock is when you walk the dog. Fantastic question, because there's like an, an ethical issuer. The reason going back to the daily planning checklists, key three, I have my clients and they tend to resist this at first, but then after they do it, they they like within a month, they go, oh my God, I get it. Let's say you have five hours of free space, uh, and, you know, nine o'clock on a, on a Tuesday morning, you do the checklist, you pick your priority cases, you conservatively estimate how much time you want to spend, meaning you you give it the right amount of time instead of chronically underestimating. The next step is to actually put those things in your calendar. So you've got a calendar that's wide open. I'm going to say, all right, Jones deposition final review. I think I need to spend two hours on that. I'm going to actually suggest that you put that in. What time do you want to do that? I'll, I'll do that from 11 to one. Good. There's two hours. And then I'm going to take uh, leave a 15 minute free space block, a little buffer block, or maybe lunch. And then I'm turning to this other matter from two to three fifteen. And if you do that, now jump forward to where I just was, you look and say, Oh, it's one fifty three. 
and look at my calendar, you say, listen, I have something on my calendar at two o'clock because you do. Now, could you just, you know, make it up and say, I have to be behind closed doors at two o'clock or some other language? Sure. But I find and my clients find like it helps them to be able to say, yeah, listen, I, I use my one of the things clients love about us or my firm or one of the things my clients say this would be part of a marketing pitch as you're, you know, working on landing somebody. Um, and they were asking you, why you do I want to hire you? You can say one of the things clients say they love is, you know, that we're really organized about our time. When we are working on your file, our full concentration is on your file. We're really good about not multitasking and we use our calendar really well. And because of that, I'm really going to uh, only have another, you know, one hour today to do this. And so there's there's a whole, you know, that that's a, a sense of confidence and learning how to protect boundaries and communicate boundaries. Mm, I, I hope that wasn't too abstract. So the idea would be that you'd actually have something on your calendar at two o'clock um, and be able to say, Nancy, I have um, a meeting I've got to get to, or I've got um, an appointment at two. That appointment can be with yourself because it's actually on your calendar. And now you may think- No, I don't find that abstract at all. I, I think it's no. very clear. You know, you, you, if you connect it with planning your day, it makes perfect sense, at least in my Exactly. Mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot about boundaries. And then the eighth key is personal well-being. Um, and so uh, this has to do with, un- A, you know, a couple of key elements here, understanding our natural styles. And so many of our, uh, your listeners have um, familiar with the Myers-Briggs. It's a uh, very common sort of style assessment of how we interact with the world. Are we sensing, feeling, judging, intuitive, rational, analytical? We all are, you know, different. And we have natural ways of behaving. The instrument I use is called the DISC, which is an acronym for Drive, Influence, Steadiness, Compliance. And it has to do with whether we lean toward perfectionism, um, whether we, uh, you know, where we are in the risk taking scale, do we jump ahead, not knowing, you know, what we're getting into? Um, how, um, um, patient are we? Some of us are uh, with high steadiness as a factor. It's just the way we're wired. There's no right, wrong. There's no good, bad. There's no fault. It has to do with our, how are we operating in the environment and the requirements of the environment in which we're operating? So if we're in a really, really high volume insurance defense practice where there's just new cases and documents coming in every day and there's expected expectation to turn them around really, really fast, um, a certain kind of person is better suited for that environment because they are they move at a quicker pace. They can metabolize information faster. Maybe they're not great with detail, but they get enough done and they hand it off to the next person who will do the double check for them. And that's a good fit for how that particular firm may work. On the other hand, if that's the environment and I, on my assessment determined that I am, I lean toward perfectionism and resistance to change. And I like a slower pace. That environment is going to cause me stress. So personal well-being starts with understanding who we are and what our natural styles are. Hopefully we'll, we're well matched to the environment, but by taking an instrument like this, we can learn about ourselves to say, ah, so this is what drives me. This is where I'm challenged. This is what causes me the most 
um, challenge or stress given the environment and what can I do about it? So it's the beginning of personal well-being or personal learning. And that's, you know, where coaching comes in, uh, in-house coaching, outside coaching, whatever it is, but saying, how do I work? How, how am I fit for the environment? Another piece of personal well-being is just attending to the, um, the health of our nervous systems. Um, I am neutral about relaxation techniques. I'm, uh, I, I sort of lean toward, I guess, um, colloquial Buddhist ideas of compassion and peace. But um, there are all kinds of non-sectarian ways to learn how to breathe and work with our bodies so that we are less stressed. There's a lot of work, great work being done for lawyers in the field of mindfulness. And so um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, what is that acronym? MBSR um, is something that if it, you know, any of your listeners are um, curious about, they can actually look up um, so that, you know, you can enjoy a thriving practice and have it be sustainable by paying attention to um, physical health, psychological, emotional health. Um, and there are all kinds of tools and coaching tools out there to say, yeah, I'm happy. I'm not happy. And there's a lot of books around it for lawyers. Um, it's an inherently stressful profession. There is no doubt about it. Um, and we make our choices. You know, um, I've had many clients over the years who have left Private, large firm private practice to go in-house because it's a little bit more of a nine to five, nine to six, depending on where you are. It's got its own pressures. Those of you who may be listening and who are in-house or thinking about in-house tend to be over meetinged. You know, that's the life of in-house counsel in many ways, but it, but it's a, it's different kind of stressors. If you own your own firm, that's a different kind of experience. So the eighth key is looking at what tools are available um, that I can use to bring overall sustainable, better well-being to the to my practice, so that I can do this for as long as I want, um, you know, with the least amount of stress and the greatest degree of satisfaction. You hear if you list the eight keys, and to me, it doesn't sound like they have to be done in a particular order. But it almost right. begs the question of: Do you do eight number eight first to see if you're in the right career for you? Because it sounds <laughs> like, you know, if mental health is such a factor, you know that in itself will be time management. If you're happier, you'll manage your time better because it won't be yes. as overwhelming. Do you find that to be true? Yes. And it depends on where someone is in their career and where, you know, so when I do trainings for firms, um, there are both, you know, new lawyers and, and seasoned lawyers. And so I go through the keys, but then address exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, I actually, I, I kind of leave it to them. It's for someone to figure out and hear this. And then I'll get emails after it saying, wow, that was really interesting. I have some thinking to do. I have a lot of reading to do. Um, uh, you know, and I'd say there's a lot of folks um, who don't really think much about personal well-being because, you know, they're healthy and they're happy. And they say, you know what, I just want to be a little bit more efficient or I want to be more profitable without spending greater hours um, additional hours. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Um, th they don't go in sequence. I mean, the training is in a sequence to introduce them, then the handouts right. and the reading. But really where I start is key three. I'm, you know, I, we address task management, but I look first at how are you planning your day? Um, you know, talk to me about that. How do you decide what to do? Are you in reactive mode primarily? 
or are you in proactive mode primarily? And then that will often lead to what are you doing with your tasks? How are you figuring out? How are you capturing them? Are you using OneNote? Are you using Microsoft To Do, which is now integrated in Outlook 365 and finally is a usable task management tool, in my opinion? Um, talk to me about your team, you know, and how about your software, your systems optimization? So when I work with clients and teams, um, you know, it's assessing what's the biggest pain point. Um, and with a given individual, it's all right, where do you, where are you starting off in terms of your, um, openness to, to changing some things? Because if someone says I'm not open to change, then, you know, that's that and God bless. Um, uh, and and where are you with well being? And a lot of people say, no, I'm, I'm good there. I get to the gym. I'm happy. I get, you know, um, my life is is good. Um, but um, you know, I, I if I had um, a more effective team, I could X. I could hand off X Y Z. Or I need to spend more time marketing. I'm a great litigator. I'm a go to. My very first client, who's now a senior judge, um, 22 years ago, was the go to guy for his firm of about 35 lawyers. When they got in ethics trouble, he was a brilliant lawyer, but he just had no traction around developing his own practice. And he, that's why he wanted to make time for consistency. So he wanted to learn good law firm business development, um, book of business marketing plans. But even that, he had done plenty of reading on that. And he talked to clients. He just needed to get himself organized because he was kind of all over the place um, in, in terms of his practice. So I don't know if that sort of answers your question. Often I'll start with, show me how you're planning. Show me your to-do list. Who's on your team? What tools are you using? And actually that does answer my question because what it seems like then is that a great source of what you find is that a great source of stress and unhappiness could be tied into the fact that you're just not effectively planning your day. So if you essentially, <laughs> it's kind of, I think I'm coming full circle here and I'm basically yeah. saying exactly what you're saying is true is that time management is a huge component of happiness. So if you start by planning your day and having a good plan, that's the letting everything else fall into place. Yeah. And not to say that, you know, the best laid plans, I mean, they constantly, and I get that a lot, like, okay, so you do the plan and then something blows up, you know, and I of say, course. yep, of course. It, it will. And so you sort of redo the process in miniature form or in compressed form. If something blows up at one o'clock, and you're going to work another five or six or seven hours, then you sort of say, all right, what what remains from the original plan? What needs to change? But let me go back through that checklist in a thoughtful way. Let me take five minutes to readjust rather than something blows up, you attend to it, and then you don't stop to pause and look at what is in my enlightened best interest going forward. Um, I just want to say one more thing about time, you know, uh, to sort of wrap up or, you know, and I'm, I, I love this stuff as you can tell. So happy to continue, but I um, find it fascinating. So again, whether it's from my own personal experience as an attorney, or even just knowing what I speak, when I speak to other attorneys, because like I said, in the role that I am, I talk to them about everything, you know, things like client intake and all of that. So I think it's all very, very relevant to both myself personally. And our, I know our listeners, because there are a lot of our clients. So I, I keep talking good, as far as good. I'm concerned. So, so the, um, Back to mindset, I didn't mention it uh, at the top, and I should have. Um, I start training and presentations with an acknowledgement that time management is um, kind of a misnomer, <laughs> um, if not a a, 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 dis- a conscious dishonesty, in that 
Um, we all have the same 24 hours. We all have the same 60 minutes in an hour. None of us know how long we're going to be on this earth. So it's not really time management. It's actually self-management and choice management. And that's huge because we can't, none of us can get more time, have more time, find more time, make more time. We just can't. And yet, you know, if, if someone is curious to, you know, and this, if this resonates, I invite people, invite you listeners to um, note how often you hear yourself and you hear other people use one of those phrases. Like, I just got to make time for, I just got to find the time for when I get around to, um, you know, um, and that's not true. We can't make more time, find more time, get more time, have more time. We can just choose to spend time differently. So it is self-management and choice management. And yet, um, time management is the phrase that people look up and that time management is the phrase that people write books about because, for obvious reasons. I, you know, I get it. Um, but it isn't really time management. It's self-management and choice management. And that's a, a very profound assertion. Um, and uh, despite, you know, one of my brands being lawyer time management, um, you know, lawyer self-management, what does that mean? Peter won't really get it. But once you really embrace that, that becomes sort of the door that people walk through and say, yeah, there's always going to be more to do than time to do it. If you accept that truth, and if it, if that is true for you and accept that, then it isn't time management, again, because we can't have, find, get more time. We can only choose to spend time differently, which places the responsibility back on us rather than blaming the world, clients, technology, or firm culture, this and that. You know, it's a, it can be a tough message to hear, but it, um, it's choice management and self-management in using our time more effectively. There endeth the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two questions for you, Bill, and then I'll let you get going. I mean, hopefully everyone will just hire you as their coach, so if you keep going with them individually. But yeah. what would you say, you know, you can have the mindset of, oh, I need some, I want someone to help our coach, you know, help coach us, help improve our firm, just because it sounds like a good idea. But mm -hmm. what would you say is to someone who doesn't know if they need the coaching? What would you say is a warning sign to someone? Like, what, at what point no. do you mm -hmm. say if you're facing X, Y, and Z, maybe you do need time management training? Do you have any signs yeah, that sure. they can look for? Well, yes. Um, to, to, primary obvious ones, although they get attenuated and much more subtle. One is blowing a deadline, you know, some missing a statute because of disorganization. Um, so um, risk to client uh, or reputational harm to the firm because of some mistake that results from disorganization um, is one. And short of that or separate, you know, it can overlap is um, burnout, um, uh, loss of joy in the law. As you can hear, I'm I'm a law geek, but I don't, you know, I don't practice law. My wife does. She's a very busy Title IX civil rights attorney, and I support her and her firm as the sort of, you know, in-house management coach guy there. So I, I, you know, 22 years of working with clients and then, you know, living it with my wife's firm, I am really attuned to the stressors um, sickness, burnout, dissatisfaction, 
complaints from others, frustrations from others, complaints from clients around tardiness or poor communication, you know, much less if you get a, uh, an, an ethics complaint lodged. I mean, that's what, you know, 80% of complaints to bar associations are from clients around um, one point, uh, which is at 1.4 about, you know, duty to keep a client well-informed. So the ethics rules, uh, and in fact, in Connecticut, in many states, um, if you get tagged with that, they will um, force uh, attorneys who have been nicked uh, uh, for these client complaints to take a time management course, um, which you know I used to do every year for the Connecticut bar. I think other people are doing it now. So that's a combination of the obvious things that come at you like, uh-oh, I screwed up. And the less obvious, um, I'm, I think I'm getting close to hitting a wall here of some sort, or I'm just overwhelmed. It's funny because when I meet with clients and when I introduce myself to them, I always explain that, you know, I started out in an attorney, but then kind of fell into attorney digital marketing on the side. And a lot of them will tell me, oh, you're lucky you got out. And I'm like, well, maybe you need Bill's course. That'll be my next, that'll be my next question. If you're feeling that burnout and you're thank, you know, you're saying you're jealous of me escaping to do a separate, then maybe you need to hire Bill. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, or, or, I mean, there's a lot, you know, and I appreciate, you know, sure. I, I, um, you know, the, the, the folks, the percentage of folks who are really willing to do that introspection and that work, uh, you know, that's why I sandwich key one mindset, key eight well-being and the other things in the middle um, who are willing to do the mindset kind of work around what's possible. What am I really confronting? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, those are um pretty far, you know, few and far between. I mean, the training is really useful. So people learn lots of concrete tips in a four hour training, like here, don't ever pick up the phone until you identify the time and look at your calendar so that you can state the, uh, your availability at the top of the interaction to avoid making people feel like you're trying to ditch them. So people are like, oh, that's great. So you can get that out of training and that's helpful. And I'm, I'm happy that people pick up that tip. But to really change their experience, um, it's a pretty courageous, brave um, commitment that people have to make. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from contacting me, but, um, you know, it's it's a it's a heavy duty thing, actually. Well, thank you, Bill. I, I certainly found this very helpful and insightful, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will. Is the best way for them to contact you to visit either successtrackesq.com or Lawyer Time Management? Correct. All right. Well, listeners, you heard it here. <laughs> if you find yourselves needing some assistance, Bill sounds like a really wonderful person to speak with. Thanks All right, listeners, thank you for tuning yeah. in to the, this last episode of Exclusive, and thank you again to Bill for providing us with all of this insight. Tune in next time and have a great one. Thank you all.